Let's pray and we'll ask God for his help. Father, we do pray that as we reflect on your word now, you help us to understand what it means and you'll thrill us again with the magnificence of the glory of the Lord Jesus and of your grace towards us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, not everyone likes the doctrine of predestination. Do you know what the doctrine of predestination is? Predestination means that God has decided everything in advance. Everything that happens, happens according to God's plan. Uh, But in particular, the idea of predestination, it relates to our salvation. So predestination, predestination is the concept that God has chosen who will go to heaven and who will go to hell. God already knows. He's already decided and many people think that that is an offensive doctrine. Uh, some people say that it takes away our freedom. So author Joseph Delaney, for example, writes this. If everything's already decided, then what's the point of living? Interesting question. Uh, other people, like uh, theologian Jacques Ellul, they say that the idea that God would predestine some people to go to heaven and some people to go to hell is impossible if God is a God of love. If God is a God of love, they say, then he must predestine everyone to be saved. Let me quote from Jacques Ellul. It is inconceivable that the God who gives himself to us in his Son to save us should have created some people ordained to evil and damnation. There can be only one predestination to salvation. In and through Jesus Christ, all people are predestined to be saved. Some people say that predestination, it's contrary to the love of God. Other people say that it's unfair, that it's wrong, that it's immoral, that God has no right to be able to choose some people but not others. Listen to this quote from Mary Schaefer. If there is predestination, then God is the devil. That pretty much says it like it is, doesn't it? Uh, Not everyone's too keen on the idea. So what about you? What about you? Are you a Christian? Why do you think you're a Christian? Do you believe that God chose you to be a Christian? Do you believe in predestination? What do you think? All right, well, let's remember where we are in John's Gospel. In these first 12 chapters, John is telling us the vast majority of the ministry of Jesus. These first 12 chapters cover pretty much the whole of the ministry of Jesus except for the last week. And in in these first 12 chapters, what John does is he picks out seven special miraculous signs that Jesus did. Seven signs that show us something of how magnificent Jesus is and and, and how glorious what he has done for us is. Uh, But the sad fact is, as we work through these 12 chapters of John, we're seeing that, that people are not responding very well. Jesus is doing these fantastic miracles, but most people aren't believing in him. I mean, there have been some strange exceptions, like a town of Samaritans or the family of a, a royal official, an enemy Gentile family. But for the most part, Jesus' own people, the Jews, they're just not getting it. They're not getting it. A small number of Jews are becoming his disciples, but the religious rulers, the Jewish authorities, they're not putting their faith in Jesus. Far from it, they hate Jesus. They're even plotting to kill Jesus. And then for the vast majority of the Jewish people, well, Jesus is pretty much just irrelevant to them. Now, here in chapter 6, we've seen two 
of the seven signs of Jesus. Two amazing signs, two impossible signs. Jesus has fed God's people in the wilderness with bread. 5,000 people from five loaves. And Jesus has brought his people safely through the sea, walked on water and brought them to the other side. As we thought about last week, Jesus is being like Moses. God is showing us that Jesus is the one who can bring us through this life and into the ultimate promised land of heaven. Well, here in John chapter 6, a crowd have followed Jesus. Um, Jesus has told them, don't worry about your tummies so much, worry more about eternal life. And then they've said, well, what does God want from us? And Jesus has given his answer, and it's there in chapter 6 and verse 29. Chapter 6 and verse 29, Jesus says, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So Jesus, like Moses, bringing his people to the promised land, what do you have to do? Believe in him. Well, now in our passage for today, the people ask Jesus for a sign. He's just fed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread. Apparently that's not enough proof. Although if you think about it, when Moses fed Israel with bread in the wilderness, he didn't just do it once, did he? He did it every day. Every day. And these people, they live in a world where they're not guaranteed a feed every day. Getting a meal is far from guaranteed. And so they're very keen on the idea of Jesus feeding the 5,000 on a daily basis. Three times a day, as far as they're concerned. John chapter 6 and verse 30. Have a look with me. John chapter 6 and verse 30. So they asked him, What miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, at this point, Jesus does a bit of a shift. He changes the metaphor. Okay, so he has been equivalent to Moses all the way so far in the chapter. But now he shifts a little bit and he compares himself not to Moses, but to the manna, to the bread. Uh, Jesus said, God gave bread from heaven and God is now giving an even greater sign. The true bread from heaven, says Jesus, is a man. A man who has come to bring eternal life. Verse 32. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. People say, we're not fussy, we'll eat anything. Give us this bread. But Jesus says, it's me. You need to come to me. You need to believe in me. I am the bread that gives eternal satisfaction and life. Verse 34. So they said, from now on give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. God's command is very simple. Put your faith in Jesus. But sadly, these people won't do it. Even though they've seen Jesus, even though they've seen him feed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread, they don't believe in him. I don't know if you've ever, ever thought to yourself, if I'd been there when Jesus was, was here, if, if I'd seen him do his miracles, then I'd be able to believe. Well, here they are. They've seen him do a miracle. And they don't believe. And now Jesus explains why. The situation is this. 
people cannot believe in him. They can't do it. They are, we are, to use an expression from the Apostle Paul, dead in our sins. Jesus says, it's only the people that the Father gives him who can come to him. But there's more to say. Because Jesus says, if the Father has given a person to him, then he'll never drive them away. If if the Father has given them to Jesus, they will look to him. They will believe in him. And Jesus says that he will hang on to them and never let them go. He'll raise them up to eternal life. Their future is secure in the hands of Jesus. Verse 36. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Israelites do what Israelites have historically done. They grumble. They say that Jesus can't possibly have come from heaven. They know his parents, or at least they think they do. Verse 41. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? The people are grumbling, but Jesus doesn't take a backward step. He just reaffirms what he's saying. He says again, He says again, no one can believe in him unless the Father enables them, unless the Father draws them to him. Verse 43. Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus refers to the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah wrote about a time of salvation, a new age of salvation. He said in that that time, uh, people will learn from God. Jesus says, you want, you want that fulfilled? You want to learn from God? Well, I've come from God, so listen to me. Verse 45. It's written in the prophets, in Isaiah. They will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Jesus is the one who gives God's teaching. And here's what it is. Here's what God says. It's the same thing Jesus has already been saying. People need to believe in him. They need to eat the true bread. Verse 47. I tell you the truth. He who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. I used to have a good mate who lived on Marion Street in Leichhardt, just, uh, just next door to a bakery. And uh, I used to love going and staying at his place because you'd wake up in the morning and the smell of the bread that they were cooking would waft in. Often we'd walk just a couple of doors down to the bakery early in the morning and, 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 and get it while it was still hot and fresh out of the ovens. Mm, how magnificent 
fresh bread straight out of the oven. It smells magnificent. It tastes magnificent. It feels everything about it is is beautiful, and it is it's so essential, isn't it? I mean, it's a staple food here in Australia, at least. It's a very vivid image, isn't it? Jesus is saying, "I'm the true bread." You want to be sustained through this life into eternal life? You've got to eat him, believe in him. But, but now though, in verse 51, Jesus changes the metaphor slightly again. So he was Moses, his, feeding his people in the wilderness and bringing them through the sea. He was Moses. Then, then he was the manna, he was the bread itself. And now he changes the metaphor slightly again and he says that the bread is his, his flesh, his, his meat given for the life of the world. Now this idea of flesh, it comes from the Old Testament, from the sacrificial system. Uh, in, in the Old Testament, if you sinned against God, you would, you would go to the temple and you'd offer an animal sacrifice. You'd, you'd kill an animal as a sacrifice to God and then you would eat part of the animal. Jesus is using the metaphor to explain what it means to believe in him. It, it means you need to trust in his sacrifice, participate in his sacrifice on the cross. The end of verse 51 this bread is my flesh which I will give for the life of the world. Now again, what Jesus says is so vivid that it just causes this massive consternation. Uh, people are thinking very literally about what he said. They're kind of thinking cannibalism or something. But, but Jesus doesn't stop. It just doesn't hold back at all. In fact, he goes even harder. He says, do you know what? If you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot have eternal life. Verse 52. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day, for my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him, just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Jesus doesn't hold back and his teaching is pretty vivid, pretty stark and quite offensive to many of the people that were there. Offensive even to many of the people who had been following him. Some of his disciples, they say to him, Jesus, this is pretty yuck. It's pretty tough stuff. We're not that excited about it. Verse 60. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Jesus says two things in reply. The first thing he says is, I'm not speaking physically. I don't literally mean you have to eat me. These words are spirit. It means you need to trust in my sacrifice. Verse 61. Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Jesus is speaking spiritually. But second, the reality is it wouldn't matter how he spoke because Jesus knows this. No one 
can put their faith in him unless the Father enables them. Verse 64. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. But Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. Well, for most people, it's it's too much. Uh, Many of the disciples give up on Jesus. They walk away. All that's left, just 12 disciples. Jesus says, you're going to leave as well? And then Peter makes a, a, a lovely confession. He says, no way, no way, you're the one who gives eternal life. We're staying right here. Although Jesus' response is interesting. He doesn't go, wow, Pete, you're so clever. No, he goes, I chose you. There is one exception, though, and that's Judas the betrayer. Verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. Okay. Can you see what's here, then, in this last part of John chapter 6? First, can you see, can you see again something of who Jesus is and what he's done? Because these are very vivid metaphors, aren't they? I mean, from the miracles last week, we saw that Jesus is the new Moses, bringing us through this, this world into the ultimate promised land of heaven. But now these, these two metaphors, very vivid. Jesus says, he's the true bread. He is the one who can eternally satisfy you, give you eternal life. You think you need to eat bread now, you need to eat him for eternal satisfaction in life. Or to shift the metaphor again, Jesus talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. It's a reference to his sacrifice on the cross. It is through his sacrifice that he will give eternal life. Who is Jesus? The ultimate Moses, the ultimate manna, the ultimate sacrifice. What can he do? Eternally satisfy our souls. This is magnificent, isn't it? This is, this is exactly what we need. Friends, as we move through John's Gospel, I pray that we're growing in our grasp of how magnificent he is. I mean, it's stuff we already know, but as we see the vividness of John's metaphors and the, the glory of Jesus' miracles, I hope we're understanding more and more how fantastic he is and and just how much we need him how much we need him i hope you realize the significance of what jesus is saying about himself here i mean verse 53 i think says it's well because you can say it positively and everyone will agree it's when you say it negatively that it really it really bites verse 53 jesus says there is no life in you unless you rely on his sacrifice on the cross. Friend, I'm sure you're a lovely person. I'm sure you're very kind to your friends and family. But the fact is, Jesus reckons without him you are dead. Without him you will face the condemnation of God. 
Jesus reckons that he alone can give you life. Jesus reckons that he alone can raise you up at the last day into eternal life. This is magnificent news if Jesus is your saviour and you should be saying thank you, thank you, thank you. If Jesus is not your saviour, you should be very worried. Because if what he says is true, it's very, very bad news for you. So what do we need to do from this passage? What's God's command to us? Answer. Eat the bread. Eat the flesh. Drink the blood. Or or to move away from metaphors, put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Rely on him to sustain you through this life and into eternal life. Friends, I hope you've done that. I pray that you have done it because everything is at stake here. The whole of your forever stands or falls on your response to Jesus. The thing that I find quite, quite special and, and, and fairly unique about this passage is this final point. And that's the question of how it is that anyone can put their faith in Jesus. I mean, in one sense, you get to the end of John, of John chapter 6, and Jesus' ministry looks like a total flop, doesn't it? A complete failure. The, the religious authorities hate him. The crowds only like him if they can get a feed. Even his disciples are deserting him left, right and centre. We're down to 12 disciples. Even one of them is going to betray him. It looks like a disaster. We're, we're, what, is it four, five miracles? Five miracles into the seven miracles. And what have we got to show for it? Eleven measly people. And yet Jesus is not surprised, is he? I mean, you don't see Jesus going, oh, you shouldn't have said that, they've all gone off again. You don't see Jesus going, oh no, I can't seem to get any disciples. No, no, no. He's not surprised. Why not? Because he knows, verse 65, no one can put their faith in him unless God enables them. He knows, verse 44, no one can come to Jesus unless God draws them. He knows, verse 37, it's only those whom whom God the Father has given to Jesus who will come to him. Jesus is perfectly clear about it. His His mission is working out exactly according to plan. Everyone whom the Father has chosen is coming to him and Jesus knows exactly what his job is verse 37 he is never going to drive away anyone who comes to him verse 39 he's never going to lose anyone whom God has given him verse 40 God's will is that Jesus will raise every single one of his people at the last day and give us eternal life do you reckon you can lose your salvation Do you reckon you can be genuinely born again and then lost? Do you reckon you can be given by God the Father to Jesus and then not be saved? Answer, only if Jesus disobeys the will of his Father. He's not going to do that. This is an amazing truth, isn't it? God has taken people like you and me, people dead in sin, people helpless even to come to Jesus. God has given us life and faith and he will hold on to us now until the very end the only reason we've been able to choose god is because he chose us the only reason we've been able to put our faith in jesus is because god enabled us the only reason we're going to make it to heaven is because jesus will hold on to us the very end yes friends it's the doctrine of predestination it's the doctrine of predestination now we don't want to misuse this doctrine this precious doctrine. 
There's no point trying to make an excuse out of it. You know, God hasn't given me faith and so I'm not going to trust in Jesus. It doesn't cut it as an excuse. God commands you. God commands you to turn from sin and trust in Jesus. You have no excuse not to do so. You have heard his command. Make your choice. And we don't want to presume on this doctrine either. Like It would be really wrong for us to say, well, God has chosen me, so now I can do whatever I want. I can't possibly be lost. Jesus is going to hold on to me. Uh-uh. That is dangerous, dangerous thinking. No, no. We ought to respond to God's love by coming to Jesus, by living for Jesus. And there's no point trying to whinge about this doctrine either, as if, like, how dare God only enable some people to trust in Jesus? How dare God make a choice about who goes to heaven or who goes to hell? It's not fair. I mean, that, that way of thinking, it, it assumes that God takes this kind of row of good people who deserve to go to heaven and say, I'll have you and you, but not you. I'll shut the gate to you. It's not the way it is always. It's the wrong starting point. Reality is, God looks upon us as people who have sinned against him, who have spat in his face and who deserve his condemnation and out of his sheer mercy and grace, he decides to save some. There's no injustice except the injustice of grace that God would not give us what our sins deserve. We mustn't misuse this doctrine. No, no, what, what we need to do is this. We need to let this doctrine fill us with thanks and we need to let this doctrine fill us with comfort. With thanks and with comfort. Personally, with thanks. Friend, are you a Christian? Have you come to Jesus? Have you believed in Jesus? Well, who have you got to thank for that? Do you go... Good on me. I put my trust in Jesus. Good on me. How clever I am to be a Christian. No, no. Not if you read this stuff. If you're trusting in Jesus, thank God. He is the one who enabled you to do it. He is the one who drew you to Jesus. We don't deserve to be saved as if we've done some good thing by having faith. We have no reason to congratulate ourselves. We have no reason to think we are any better than anyone else. Even our very faith is a gift of God. Our salvation is by grace alone. To God alone be the glory. This doctrine should fill us with thanks to God. It should fill us with thanks. And this doctrine should also fill us with comfort. Because it's not up to us. It's not up to us. When my kids were very little, I used to hold their hand to cross the road. Now, if they were scared enough, they would cling for grim death to my hand. But it wasn't their clinging to my hand that got them safely across the road, was it? No, no. It was my holding on to them. Friends, Jesus is holding on to us. Are you struggling with your faith? Do you keep failing Jesus day by day? Are you filled with doubts? Are you filled with fears? Do you feel weak and helpless? Does the idea of staying with Jesus all your life feel kind of overwhelming? Jesus has you in his hands and he will not let go. Now, some of you may have heard of the famous book Pilgrim's Progress. Central character is a man called Christian. In chapter 5 of the book, Christian meets a man called Interpreter. Uh, Interpreter's job is to teach Christian, Christian truths to Christian to help him on his pilgrimage of faith. Uh, and ch in chapter 5 of the book, Interpreter shows Christian a fire that's burning. It's burning up against a wall. Uh, someone is standing next to this fire, 
pouring water onto the fire, trying to put it out. But, but, but somehow, instead of going out, the fire keeps burning. If anything, it keeps getting brighter and brighter. A Christian asks, what does this mean? The interpreter says that the fire is our faith in Christ. The devil keeps on trying to put out the fire of our faith. Well, then Chris says, Christian, how does the fire keep on burning? And then what interpreter does, he takes Christian around to the other side of the wall. There he sees a man with a jar of oil in his hand and he's pouring it into the fire. What does this mean, says Christian? Let me quote the answer. Interpreter says, This is Christ who continually with the oil of his grace maintains the work already begun in the heart by the means of which Notwithstanding what the devil can do, the souls of his people prove gracious still. Lovely old-fashioned language, isn't it? The souls of his people prove gracious still. Jesus is pouring in the oil. He won't let the fire go out. But notice, he's behind the wall. He's out of sight. Interpreter says this, in that you saw that the man stood behind the wall to maintain the fire, this is to teach you that it is hard for the tempter to see how this work of grace is maintained in the soul. Do do you see what he's saying? You may not be able to see what Jesus is doing. It's behind the wall, but know that it is happening. Friends, Jesus is at work fanning the flame of our faith. He will not let the flame go out, so don't despair. Take comfort. Press on. Not everyone loves the doctrine of predestination. But friends, here it is, in the words of Jesus. And I've got to say, I love it. I love it. The only reason we can come to Jesus is because God, by his grace, has drawn us. And the only reason that we will make it to the very end is because Jesus is holding on to us. It is all of him, all of grace, All praise, honour and glory to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this true doctrine of predestination. We pray that it will fill us with comfort and with gratitude to you because we know that from beginning to end, you are the one who has saved us. Thank you for giving Jesus to live, die and rise again that we might be forgiven and cleansed. Thank you for giving us faith. And thank you, Jesus, that you will never lose those whom the Father has given you but will hold on to us and raise us to eternal life at the last day. We thank and praise you for your mercy and kindness in Jesus' name.